Um, and if you're staying in the room with me, you can open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 13. We are back, as Chris said, in the book of Matthew. Fall has begun. I think the weather is, is turning as well. It's cooling down. It'll be up. We're in California. We always forget. Uh, Matthew 13. I'm just going to start by reading just verses 1 through 3, the beginning of verse 3. It says, That same day Jesus went out of the house and sat beside the sea, and great crowds gathered about him, so that he got into a boat and sat down. And the whole crowd stood on the beach, and he told them many things in parables. Told them many things in parables. So we're back in the book of Matthew, and I, I want to give some review uh, to where we've come uh, up to this point. And for some of you who joined us during the summer, you, you don't really know what happened all before chapter 13. So I want to give just a broad stroke overview before we get into our chapter this morning. First of all, you need to know that Matthew's gospel is written to present Jesus as king. He is the Messiah that was promised in the Old Testament. Matthew shows in chapter 1 that Jesus has the royal lineage. He is of the royal house of David. He's a direct descendant of Abraham, the people of God. Judah, the, the line in which the scepter will not depart, that is the ruling scepter, and he's of the house of David, whose house and throne will establish the forever kingdom. And so he has the royal lineage. And then chapters 2 through 4 really emphasize that Jesus fulfills messianic prophecy. Matthew's gospel is filled with all kinds of Old Testament quotes. You'll hear this phrase, to fulfill prophecy, dozens of times across the book of Matthew. He continues to take that studious Jew back to the Old Testament to show that Jesus is the Messiah that was promised. Thirdly, we see in chapters 5-7 through seven that Jesus preaches the gospel of the kingdom. Jesus preaches the gospel of the kingdom, which is repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Matthew 4.17 And Jesus is not like the other scribes. He teaches with authority. He lays down law like its royal decree in the Sermon on the Mount in chapters 5-7. through seven. Finally, we saw in chapters 8-9 through nine that Jesus performs the miracles of the kingdom. One of my favorite studies so far was the comparison between Isaiah's prophecy about this miraculous Messiah and then Jesus fulfilling all those things in his life and ministry. Just as was prophesied, the king has power over Satan. He has power over storms and nature. He has power over sin, power over sickness, power over sight and sound and power even over death. 
Jesus proves he is the powerful Messiah King over all of those opposing forces. This is Jesus Christ of Nazareth is the King. The King that was promised in the Old Testament. Unfortunately, in chapters 11 and 12, the religious leaders deny this reality. They reject their Messiah and they blaspheme the Holy Spirit. They attribute the Messiah's power to demonic power, even the power of Satan. And they're, it's as if they're staring at the sun, they're feeling his heat, but they deny the light. They're blind to it. And so that brings us to chapter 13 and the parables. Jesus turns in this chapter. His ministry focus changes. And you'll see it in the text. Instead of plain teaching, Jesus now utilizes parabolic teaching. In uh, verse 34 of Matthew 13, we'll see that it says, All these things Jesus said to the crowds in parables, and indeed he said nothing to them without a parable. So his teaching style changes to, be, to teach in parables. Now, Matthew chapter 13 holds the bulk of the parables of Jesus. In fact, it's the most parable-dense chapter in the Bible. Eight parables. I count eight parables in this chapter. Let's run through them briefly. Number one, the first parable is the parable of the sower in verses 1 through 9. And the explanation is in verses 18 to 23. Then you have the parable of the weeds. That's verses 24 to 30. And then the explanation, 36 to 43. And you have the parable of the mustard seed, 31 and 32. The parable of the leaven, 33. The parable of the hidden treasure, 44. The parable of the pearl, 45 and 46. The parable of the net, verses 47 to 50. And finally, the parable of the house master in verse 52. Eight parables in one chapter. Now, it's important for us, before we go into these parables, to answer two questions. Before we study the parables of Christ, we need to answer these two questions, and they make up your outline this morning. First of all, what is a parable? What is a parable? And the second question is, why does Jesus use them? Why does Jesus use them? He actually gives us the answer in verses 10 to 17. Now, the answer to that question or those questions will tell you two things. First of all, your understanding of the parables is a salvation issue. These are not just cute stories for kids. You know, the parable of the sower and for illustrations. No, these are salvation issues. Whether or not you understand them determines whether or not you're a Christian. So you need to understand that. And we'll see that as we go through the parables. And second thing, second thing that we'll see is that parables are as pertinent to us today as they were for the disciples in the first century. In fact, these parables describe today. It gives us helpful insights to understand what kind of chaotic world we live in today. It's going to help us as Christians 
live in this age after the ascension of Christ and before his return. And so it's helpful for ministry today, these parables. So it's important for us to pay attention. Jesus says, he who has ears, let him hear. Do you understand the parables? Do you know what they mean? Do you know why Jesus uses them? Those are important questions to answer, especially with this chapter. Before we move any further, I'd just like to pray and give this time to the Lord and ask Him to open hearts and to open eyes and to open ears this morning. Bow with me. Heavenly Father, come to you asking for you to do only what you can do by your Holy Spirit, which is to enliven hearts today. Pray that you would open eyes to see, to spiritually discern the truth. That you'd open ears to hear the truth, and not that we would just listen, but that we would apply your truth in our lives. God, only you can do that. We are not able. And so we ask that you would this morning and that your word would work powerfully in the hearts of people today. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, two questions. First is, what is a parable? What is a parable? Well, the Greek word is a compound word. First, you have the prefix para. You're familiar with that That prefix in the English language, para, which means to come alongside. You have a paralegal. What does the paralegal do? They come alongside the lawyer, the attorney. They help them with research and so so forth. You have a parachute. What does that do? Well, that comes alongside the person jumping out of the airplane. It helps them to land safely. So para means to come alongside of something else. And then you have uh, balo, the Greek word balo, which means to throw or to place something down. So the compound word literally means to throw or to place alongside. Here's my definition of a parable, and you can write this down. A parable is a short story thrown alongside a spiritual truth for comparison. For comparison. Parables are similes. They often start with this line. It is like a blank. So the kingdom is like a mustard seed. The kingdom is like a net, so on and so forth. Parables are helpful for comparison. Um, It's hard to understand or even think about how big dinosaurs were. Right? It's hard to imagine their size. But what I love are those picture books that place a a bus or a person or a building alongside a dinosaur. And you're like, oh, well, that's a helpful comparison. So a brachiosaurus, right, is what? Three buses long and five stories tall. Okay, now I can understand kind of how big this dinosaur was. That is what parables do. They help you to understand or illustrate something. They relate to the audience with a story of perceivable comparison. The parable is not an invention of Jesus. The Jewish teachers were using these long before he came. 
But parables were used to explain, again, to illustrate or simplify their teachings. One of the most famous parables in the Old Testament was the parable of Nathan. The parable Nathan used to confront King David. Do you remember it? He told a story of two men, one rich, one poor. The rich man had a large herd, many sheep. The poor man had but one sheep. What did the rich man do? He went and took the poor man's one sheep and killed it, slaughtered it, and gave it to his guests that he was hosting. How did King David react to this parable? He was enraged. He was enraged. He didn't yet see the comparison. Nathan would show him, but he was enraged. And he said, that man, that rich man deserves to die. That is a great injustice. And then what did Nathan say? He made the connection of the parable. You're that man. There is an example of the power of parables. They draw a strong comparison, and it's a useful teaching tool. They're vivid. They're real life experiences that teachers would use to explain spiritual truth. Now, Nathan's parable was good. But Jesus is the master of parables, okay? Jesus threw parables like Nolan Ryan throws fastballs. He's really good. And he uses them strategically in his teaching. How do we interpret parables? How do we understand them? How do we we get the meaning of a parable? Well, there's three important truths for you to understand. First of all, Spirit, or in order to interpret or understand the meaning of a parable, they need to be understood spiritually. They have a spiritual meaning. It has been said that parables are earthly stories with heavenly meaning. They're spiritually discerned and applied truth. You may understand a parable logically, like, oh, that makes sense. But in order for you to really grasp the parable and the teaching. You need to have your spiritual eyes opened to understand. Second is that the interpretation of parables is simple. There's a simple meaning to a parable. Now, I don't mean by simple, I don't mean that they're easy to understand because, well, God needs to open your eyes to understand them spiritually. But what I mean by simple is that it usually is pointing to one or few spiritual truths. They're not allegories open for many interpretations, okay? Um, You know, you could read through these stories and go, well, I think the dirt is X, or I think the dirt is Y, I think the dirt is Z, and come up with millions of interpretations. No, the parables are simple. They have one meaning, very, very, or, or few truths that the story is alluding to. The third thing you have to understand when you interpret parables is that parables are scriptural. Scriptural. Scripture interprets scripture. That is an important hermeneutical tool. So the meaning of a parable will not contradict the explicit doctrine, teachings, or other verses of scripture. Jesus is the word made flesh. He spoke the truth. He is the word, right? And so what Jesus teaches in the parables is not going to contradict what the rest of Scripture teaches. 
You know, I would be weary, just as a side note, of developing an entire doctrine or eschatological position on a parable. That is unwise. Parables will help you to understand and enlighten you on the rest of scriptural truth. Okay? So parables, in order to understand them, their meaning, you have to understand that they're spiritually discerned. They are They have a spiritual interpretation or meaning. They have a simple meaning, and they have a scriptural meaning. Okay, so that gives us kind of an overview of what parables are and how to understand them. But I want us to notice, it's interesting to note the location and the audience for Jesus' parables. In the beginning, I read the verses, we see him teaching from a boat to a large crowd. And if you read the rest of the chapter, you see he teaches four parables to the crowds. But he doesn't explain them to the crowds. And then Jesus goes into a house. And in that house, it's him and his disciples only, without the crowds. And in that house, he explains the parables to his disciples only, and he teaches four more to his disciples There are two audiences, the disciples and everybody else. So it gives us a clue as to why Jesus uses the parables. And so that's our second question that we need to answer. Why did Jesus use parables? Well, he tells us why in verses 10 to 17. So I want to walk through this passage with you. We'll read the text in a minute, but I'm just going to give you the points ahead of time. Jesus tells us why he uses parables in these verses, and there's two reasons. Here they are. First, to reveal the secrets of the kingdom. And the second reason is to conceal the secrets of the kingdom. To reveal and to conceal. See, the Jewish teachers, they would only use parables to explain spiritual truth. Jesus uses them to hide spiritual truth, to reveal, to conceal, to hide, and to explain. Jesus wields the parables like a two-edged sword. On the one hand, judgment for the hardened unbelievers. On the other hand, a helpful explanation for those whose eyes have been opened and their hearts understand. Let's see how Jesus lays it out in verses 10 to 17. Let me read the whole text. Then the disciples came and said to him, Why do you speak to them in parables? There, there's our question. Here's Jesus' answer. He answered them, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven. But to them, it has not been given. For to the one who has, more will be given, and he'll have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This is why I speak to them in parables. Because seeing, they do not see. Hearing, they do not hear. Nor do they understand. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, You will indeed hear, but never understand. You will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's hearts have grown dull, 
And with their ears, they can barely hear. And their eyes, they have closed. Lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart in turn, and I would heal them. But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For truly, I say to you, many prophets and righteous people longed to see what you see and do not see and did not see it and to hear what you hear and did not hear it so jesus explains two audiences there's two kinds of people and he compares them and in that comparison he gives the reasons why he uses parables on the one hand to reveal and the other hand to conceal but before we get into these verses we need to understand that phrase in verse 11, the secrets of the kingdom of heaven. Because that is what the disciples have been given. The secrets to the kingdom of heaven. That's what they can see, and that's what they're able to understand. And so we need to know what Jesus means by the secrets of the kingdom. Now, there's one common theme throughout all of these eight parables. One word, here it is. Kingdom. Kingdom. These are kingdom parables. We could just go through them. Verse 19, when anyone hears the word of the kingdom. Verse 24, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed seed. Verse 31, the kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed. 33, the kingdom of heaven is like leaven. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure, 44. 45, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant, 47. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net. And finally, verse 52, every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house. So do you agree with me, kingdom theme? Yay, nay, yay. Okay, good. At this point in Jesus' ministry, this is a turning point because there should be great expectations for the full arrival of God's kingdom. After all, the kingdom's here. He's arrived. And the king has come to preach the gospel of the kingdom. He's performed the miracles of the Messiah. Shouldn't we all expect the kingdom's arrival? For Christ to establish His rule and His reign from the earth over the earth, to make all wrongs right, to establish the Old Testament kingdom that was promised. There should be that expectation. But there's a huge problem. The huge problem is the people of Israel at large. They have rejected their Messiah. I mean, chapters 11 and 12... They, the religious leaders, have blasphemed the Holy Spirit. They deny the Son, even though they see His light and they feel His heat. And they've attributed the miracles of the Messiah to demonic power and Satan. And Jesus said, you've committed the unforgivable sin. And He pronounces judgment upon them. He said, it's going to be worse for you on the day of judgment than it was for the people of Nineveh, than it was for the queen of Sheba. They will mock you because you saw the king and his miracles and you denied them. 
And so Jesus calls this generation of Israel at large an evil and an adulterous generation. The generation holds to law, yet rejects the Lord of the law. The generation seeks for a sign, yet they deny the resurrection, the greatest sign. This generation seeks wisdom, kingly wisdom, yet they mock the true king and his divine wisdom. So again, Israel has rejected their Messiah. I mean, at the end of this chapter, Jesus doesn't even get love in his own hometown. Israel wholesale has rejected him. And if you go back to those kingdom promises, the kingdom expectations in the Old Testament, and you're familiar with them, you would know that Israel's repentance and restoration is a sign of the kingdom's full arrival. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Zechariah talk about this. Israel's mass repentance, their mass restoration to the land that was promised to them, their hearts being broken and humble before their king. And right now in Jesus' ministry, we're certainly not seeing those conditions. And so where is this kingdom? This is a pivotal point. And so Jesus turns and he reveals secrets. Okay, secrets. That word secrets and its meaning is truth that was previously hidden but is now revealed. Okay, so truth that was previously hidden, truth that the prophets, look back at verse 17, and righteous people longed to see but they didn't see, they didn't have revealed to them, the disciples are now having revealed before them. And I believe this secret, or the secret that Jesus reveals, is a period, an age, an era, in God's kingdom plan, when Israel would be hard and Gentiles will be saved. These parables reveal or show God's kingdom plan in the church age, in the age we are today. The period of history between the ascension of Jesus Christ and his return. Some theologians describe it as the already and not yet period. So on the one hand, the king has arrived. The new covenant has been inaugurated by his blood. The gospel is being proclaimed. People from all nations, Gentile nations, are being saved. Christ is ruling hearts, but he's not ruling over governments or kings in that sense, in that visible sense yet. He's redeeming for himself a people, and he's transferring them from the kingdom of darkness into his marvelous kingdom. The gospel spreads, the church is built, the gates of hell will not overcome it. This is the age that Jesus talks about in these parables. He talks about these spiritual conditions and reveals them to the disciples. So while this is happening, the end hasn't come yet. The kingdom's full arrival hasn't appeared. Christ has not returned. But he still will rule over the earth 
or from the earth over the earth for a thousand years, Romans tells us when. Romans tells us in Romans eleven twenty five through 26, not my words, Paul's words, that when the age of the Gentiles is complete, the time of hardening for Israel is finished, all Israel will be saved. God will pour out a spirit of grace and cries for mercy on the house of David and all the inhabitants of Israel. They will look upon him whom they have pierced and repent. Not my words, the words of Zechariah the prophet, chapter 12, 10 through 11. And Paul explains that on that day, when the king arrives, that those natural branches that were broken off for a time will be grafted back in, into their own olive tree. Romans eleven twenty four. So, the already and not yet period. The kingdom conditions are being fulfilled in this day, spiritually and only partially, but not yet physically and fully. And so think of it this way. We live in the time in between Christ's ascension and his return. And all of these parables that Christ teaches relate to that time period up into the point where he comes back, his return. The two comings of the Messiah was not foreseen by the prophets. They were looking forward to the coming of the Messiah and thought that he would come and establish his rule. But Jesus shows and he teaches, I'm coming twice. I came first to seek, to serve, and save the lost, to meet those spiritual need that the people have. And then he says, I'm coming again. The Son of Man is coming again in his glory to rule and to reign over the earth and from the earth. And so if you think about it this way, the prophets were looking forward to the New Testament and the coming of the Messiah, and they saw a mountain range. They thought, that's the coming of the Messiah. And if you look at a mountain range from afar, even you look up towards Baldy, you see kind of a, a general structure. Right? It kind of from afar appears like one big peak or mountain. But you get up close and you go in between the peaks and you see, ah, oh, there's several peaks in this mountain range. There are two comings of the Messiah first advent, second advent. And Jesus describes this age, this period in between, before the end comes. When the gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed to all the nations, Matthew 24, 14. And now here's the connection to the parables. Follow me. Some, during this time period, will receive it by faith, and others will reject it. There's the parable of the sower. Some, during this age, between the ascension and the return, will have fake believers mixed in with real believers. There's the parable of the weeds. But Christ will distinguish them in the end. The gospel will multiply and spread throughout this age. Kingdom citizens will grow. The parable of the mustard seed and of the leaven. Kingdom citizens during this age, they will seek the kingdom at all costs. There is the parable of the hidden treasure 
and the pearl of great value. And at the end of this age, when Christ comes back, he will separate the sheep from the goats, true kingdom citizens from the fake ones, and cast the fake ones into hell. That is the parable of the net. Do you see how these parables talk about the conditions of this time period? The time period in which not just the disciples lived, they saw the beginning of it, but the time period that you and I live in. This is helpful to us, isn't it? It describes to us what ministry is going to look like here during this time before Christ returns. And it gives us a great hope at his return to know that Jesus, when he comes back, he is going to distinguish the right from the wrong. He's going to pull the the wheat from the tares. He's going to separate sheep from goats. Our job is just to remain faithful in this church age and trust Christ to bring that kingdom to full consummation in the end. And so, kingdom secrets are being revealed here. These are parables for today. He who has ears, let him hear, Jesus says. Okay, so that is what I believe the secrets of the kingdom of heaven. That's what the secrets that Jesus is revealing in this chapter. But then he goes on to say that there are two audiences. There's two groups of people out there. And there's always two groups of people. I'm mindful of this whenever I come up to preach. There's two groups of people out there. Only two. Not many, which is helpful. There are disciples, and there's everybody else. Only two groups ever. When God's word is preached, there's two groups in the audience, only ever. Disciples, everybody else. Believers, unbelievers. Saved, unsaved. No such thing as lukewarm. No such thing as the middle ground. No such thing as the neutral party. Disciples and everybody else. And that's what Jesus compares in this passage. First of all, who are disciples? Quick review. The word means learner or follower. And Jesus defines them as those who have denied themselves, taken up their cross, and they follow him. They've counted the cost. They've forsaken and turned from their sin. They've brought their burdens to Christ and found relief for their souls. They follow him, taking up his yoke. And Jesus had the immediate 12, but he also had others who counted the cost and were following him. True disciples. And if you're not in the group of the true disciples, then you're everybody else. You're like the crowds the masses, those who are walking the wide and the broad road, those who enter through the wide gate, the world, everybody else. You could be religious and be everybody else. You could be a good person and be in the group with everybody else. True disciples are true disciples. And then there are everybody else. And notice the difference between them. Jesus marks their differences when he compares them. First of all, the disciples get an explanation of the parables. Everybody else doesn't get that. The disciples, secondly, have been given not just an explanation, but they have been given spiritual understanding, verse 11 says. They've been been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven. 
Everybody else does not have spiritual understanding. They've been not, not been given that. In verse 12, Jesus says, the disciples have an abundance and they're going to be given more. Everybody else has nothing. And even the little that they think they have, that's going to be taken from them. Hendrickson, one of the commentators, writes this. I think this is helpful. There's no neutral ground. There is no break even in this life. You're either advancing or declining. You're gaining or you're losing. The disciples have spiritual eyes that see, ears that hear. Their hearts have been enlivened. And Jesus says they are blessed. Everybody else? Hearts are dull, ears are closed, eyes are closed. They are blind, deaf, and dead. Also, if you noticed as we read through this passage, there's an intersection of God's sovereignty in these matters and man's responsibility in these matters. God sovereignly controls who gets understanding, who has their eyes open to know, ears open to hear, hearts enlivened to understand. He sovereignly determines that, yet at the same time, Jesus condemns these people for hardening their own hearts, closing their own eyes, and closing their own ears. You have that theological intersection that I talked about last week of God's sovereignty and human responsibility. This wicked and evil generation in Israel is responsible for rejecting the truth. They're responsible for denying the Son. Christ has offered them the truth plainly, with plain teaching. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He has shown and displayed himself to be the true king. They look at the Son and they deny his light. So at this point, he turns and prevents them from hearing more truth. He has, in other words, he's given them over to a debased mind. Just as the Apostle Paul describes in Romans 1. You know what's worse or scarier than God ripping your idols out of your clenched hands? You know what's scarier than that? God letting you keep them. You know what's scarier or worse than God ripping that sin out of your heart? Is God letting you keep your sin, your comfort blanket, and letting you live your life as if you know the truth, but you really don't? Jesus compares this generation to the generation in Isaiah. That's why we read Isaiah 6. Isaiah had this incredible call to ministry. I mean, we, we see this heavenly display of the holiness of God and And Isaiah has his sin of his mouth atoned for by the burning coal to his lips. Incredible imagery. And then God says, who am I going to send? And Isaiah goes, me, send me. Powerful commission to ministry. And then God describes Isaiah's ministry. Did you catch that? Isaiah isn't going to have a megachurch. Isaiah won't have many converts. Isaiah is going to go out and preach judgment to a generation that is looking forward to punishment. Isaiah is going out to people who are blind, deaf, and cold-hearted. 
and preaching inevitable judgment. And these people were punished. The generation of Israel were punished. They were taken into captivity, exile into Babylon. That's what happened. And so Jesus says, that's exactly when it happened to this generation that Jesus came and ministered to. This people of Israel, they're expecting a similar judgment and punishment. And so he uses parables, well, on the one hand, to seal their doom. Powerful, powerful. Judgment and destruction is coming for those who are stuck in their unbelief, who look at the Son and deny Him blatantly, defiantly. Those who have the gospel preached to them, they turn their cold hearts away from it. This generation. And there's people, not just in this generation, but people today who do the same thing. People who sit in church every week, hear the truth proclaimed, and yet continue to harden their hearts, close their eyes against it. Those kinds of people exist today too. And so the parable still is that two-edged sword that Jesus wields, on the one hand, to judge those hardened in their sin, on the other hand, to show us who believe the truth and to explain to us the secrets of the kingdom. So, why does Jesus use parables? What can we expect as we walk through these parables in Matthew 13? We can expect him to conceal kingdom truth from those who reject it, and we can expect him to pierce the hearts of his followers and his disciples to reveal helpful, not just helpful, but life-changing kingdom truths for us to cling to from the heart. And for us to hope in. Jesus is going to make sense of all the confusion in our world. He's going to make sense of the church and its condition today. He's going to make sense of American apathy toward religion. People, you know, the polls are asking, why are so many young people leaving the church? Jesus is going to explain that in these parables. Jesus is going to minister to me as a, as a preacher of the truth. As a sower of seed and help me understand how... My audience will either grasp the truths or reject them. Helpful, life-changing truth in these parables. And I think the question for us to ask today before we go into them, just as we set the context and the stage for the parables to come, the question you need to ask yourself is who are you? Two audiences. There's two kinds of people in this world the disciples, and everybody else. And these parables will reveal who you are. First question to ask is, do you understand them? Again, not just logically, oh, that makes sense, but spiritually discerned and applied in your life. Is your heart soft towards the truth, towards the gospel? Or are you dull? Are you numb? Are you indifferent to it? Apathetic? Oh, that's the same story. I've heard the same message a million times. Do you look like a Christian and yet lack the substance of it? Maybe you appreciate the aesthetics of Christianity, the personal benefits of nice community, religious duties, a decent morality. 
Yet you lack the sacrifice. You lack the love for Christ, for others, for His Word, for the church. Are you a phony Christian? Are you sold out for the kingdom of heaven? Or are you sold out to the possessions, the people, the pleasures, and the boastful pride of life in this world? Self-evaluate. Examine your faith through these parables. Who are you, a disciple or everybody else? As I went through this section and saw the illustration of spiritual blindness, I was reminded of a blind man that I met in Uganda. This man was physically blind. His name was Daniel. Daniel worked at SOS Ministries. And get this, he worked as a a rubbish man. A trash man. So Daniel's job was to pick up the trash. Now you might ask, how would Daniel pick up trash when he's blind? He can't see it. You'd find Daniel during the day with his walking cane, scanning the path, walking side to side, scouring every inch of it until he felt a piece of trash. And at that point, he'd pick it up and throw it in the can. That's what Daniel spent his days doing picking up the rubbish. I talked to Daniel and he explained to me the disease that is in his eyes that caused him to go blind. It was gradual. It was painful. And he had just essentially become blind within the past five years. This was a recent thing. But he's so faithful to do his job. And I, I asked Daniel, I said, do you believe? Are you a Christian? He said, Yes. I believe Jesus Christ is my Lord and Savior. And Daniel was at my Romans Bible study. He could explain to me the gospel from the book of Romans. So he's a Christian. So I told Daniel, I assured him, I said, Daniel, I said, even though you're physically blind, you see. You see. You know the truth and you've believed. Now some of you pity Daniel. Look at a guy like Daniel in this world. Doesn't have much. He lives in Uganda. He's very poor. He's physically blind. His job is to be a trash man. Blind trash man. So obviously way more work for him than any other trash man. Some of you pity Daniel. But you know what? I pity us. I pity us. I pity the American church. I pity evangelicalism today. Because largely, the church is very dull, hard-hearted. The church has closed their eyes to the truth. They've closed their ears to the gospel. And so, yes, people still go to church today. But in the large part, there are not a lot of true disciples, true disciples in churches. And I pity us. I, I pity some of you who come to church every Sunday thinking that you're a Christian, but you're faking it. You think you're a Christian, but you're a phony. You lack the substance. You've heard the gospel a hundred times and you've just become more hard toward it, more deaf, more blind. You're closing your eyes, closing your ears. I prayed for you this morning. I prayed that God would enliven your heart, that He would open your eyes to see and behold the truth, that He would open your ears to hear it and to apply it to your life. I pray that you would see, not just understand rationally, but see and embrace Jesus Christ who came to this earth 
and gave his life as a great sacrifice to atone for your sins, to make you right with God. He who knew no sin became sin on your behalf. And he didn't just die, but he rose again to give and offer you a new life. Open eyes, open ears. So you can live the Christian life here on earth and then one day see him in heaven. Look forward to your own resurrection. And if you would confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus raised from the dead, you can be saved. I pray that that truth would open your eyes, your heart, and your ears, even today and through these parables. Because that's a work only God can do. I can't do it for you. I can explain ever so eloquently with such passion and zeal the truths in this chapter, but unless God does the work of softening that soil in your heart, it'll make no difference for you. In fact, it'll only make a negative impact because it's further judgment. You've heard the truth yet again. Deny it, harden toward it, and reject it. So I pray that that's not you this morning. I pray, I pray that God would open your heart to believe. Pray that prayer for yourself. Pray even for us, you know, as the church, as disciples, for us to not close our eyes, to become spiritually apathetic or even lethargic to these things. Pray that our eyes and our hearts, our ears would be enlivened and opened to the truth of God's word all the time, every day in all aspects of our life. So the parables, the parables, are you ready for life-changing kingdom truth? Helpful. Helpful for us today in this age that we live in. Let me pray. Father, I pray that you would do that work that only you can do, that you would take that rototiller of truth to our hardened, soiled hearts, that it would churn up those idols, those sins, those pleasures, the possessions, the pride of life that that hardens us. You'd churn them up and out. You'd weed out the concerns and worries of the world from our hearts and that you'd give us good soil so we would receive your truth, believe it, and apply it in our lives. God, help us not to go the way of this generation of Israel. Help us to not go the way of the average churchgoer today who hears the truth over and over and it doesn't change their life. But help us to go the way of the disciple, to be a lifelong learner and follower of Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.